Well, Gene, we're all set to get underway, and here is Harlan's Joe Carr. Well, you know, George, Joe Carr's been an outstanding player for many years. You'll notice that uh, he plays these tee shots left to right. He gets the ball an awful long way. Now he's playing that small British ball in Guyberger, the large American ball. And Joe's had a very fine opening tee shot. You can't hit it much better than that. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Welcome to the Fire Pit with Matt Janella. Always good to get back to this Fire Pit. And for all you fathers out there, happy Father's Day. I love and appreciate my father. Happy Father's Day, Papa John. But I appreciate him even more now that I'm a father. We're not perfect, but we live, we learn, and we evolve. So to the dads out there, I hope you enjoy your day. And to the moms, Trust me, we are all well aware we couldn't do it without you. On this Father's Day, a tribute to Joe Carr, who, along with his wife, Dorothy, raised six kids in a house overlooking the second green of Sutton Golf Club in Dublin, Ireland. The opening clip was from 1964, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf at Ireland's Killarney Golf and Fishing Club, in which Joe Carr and Al Guyberger both shot 74, which was even par. Joe Carr was also known as JB. He won three British Amateur Championships and was a semi-finalist at the 1961 U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach. He won six Irish Amateurs, four Irish Amateur Opens, 12 West of Ireland's, 12 East of Ireland's, three South of Ireland's, and he played in 10 Walker Cups. He was the first Irishman to become captain of the RNA in 1991 and was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2007 by his friend, Jack Nicholas. I go back to uh, 1959. I first met Joe Carr. We played in the Walker Cup matches at Muirfield, Scotland. And there was this big, lanky, raw-boned guy that hit it a long way. He played it all totally left to right, uh, hit it a long way, kept it in play, and, uh, and could putt. Jack told me he played a lot of golf with Joe Carr and that J.B. paid for a lot of Barbara's finest sweaters. J.B.'s sons will tell you he got his money back from Jack at the poker table. Well, let's just put it this way. He was, he was not only a good player, he was a great friend. And both Barbara and I, uh, I love Joe Carr. We just, we, had, we thought the world of him. And, uh, uh, and, he, and he raised good kids. And... Uh, so, you know, that's not, that's not, not, nothing too bad about that. Nicholas told me he had great respect and admiration for Joe Carr, the player and the man. Jack shares a story now about his win at the 1962 U.S. Open at Oakmont, which made him a late entry for the Open Championship at Troon that year. Joe Carr to the rescue. I qualified, but my pairing, I was added to the field. It was 150 players plus Jack Nicholas. So I was in a... I was paired by myself with a marker in the opening round of the British Open. I mean, ridiculous. Joe Carr went to the RNA and said, this is a disgrace. I said, how could you have the U.S. Open champion over here? Uh, you have no respect for the, for, the, for the USGA and their, their champion to do this. 
So they changed the pairing my, because of Joe, and uh, I then played in a threesome. Joe Carr had five sons and a daughter, all within 14 years of each other. Roddy, the second son, is the most accomplished golfer, sinking the winning putt for Great Britain and Ireland on the 18th green of the old course at St. Andrews in the 1971 Walker Cup. Roddy played 10 years on the European Tour, later working for IMG, going into business with Seve Ballesteros, and has worked with Nicholas Design. I asked Roddy to reflect on his father, the competitor. He would set out to break the man. He couldn't tell me how to do that because he told me you play par, and if you play par, you beat the guy. But he, and all he knew, he didn't know how to do that. And I watched him break people, like bodies and minds and souls were crushed because he'd be in the gourd bushes somewhere thinking, and he'd, the guy be one up, and all of a sudden, Jay, we would hack out of this thing with a forward into about eight feet and hold in front of him. And your man say, What happened there? I was down, I had two on and three putted, and your man was lost. So he set out and he broke most of it, he broke people. Marty Carr, the youngest of the six Carr kids, is now the executive chairman of Carr Golf Travel, a company that coordinates golf trips to Ireland, Scotland, and other top destinations around the world. Marty and his staff run the father-son and the father-daughter tournaments in Waterville, and I'm lucky enough to call him a dear friend. Marty shares some more of his father's golf accomplishments. First captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, 91, 92. There has been a, well, one other captain since, first Irishman. And he's the first Irishman, uh, I think he's the only, first and only Irishman in the World Golf Hall of Fame. First Irishman member of Augusta. First Irishman to play in the Masters. So, you know, he, he, in terms of golfing terms, I think he had 28 honorary life memberships, uh, 30 holes in one. I think he had like 30 course records. He, the old and the new and St. Andrews at the same time. He had Port Rush record, Hoy Lake. Like all his course records are on that big dish and something golf. Like he, he had an incredible, incredible record. John Carr, number four in the family, made it to the semifinals of a British amateur, has had a successful career in the oil business, and is a member of Augusta National. John, who still plays off a of scratch, on something most people don't know about his father. I mean, listen, you can you can you can list off his accomplishments in golf. You can list off his accomplishments in business. But actually, you know, he got an honorary degree in law from Trinity College, having not finished high school and, and, and went to play the East of Ireland Championship uh, instead of finishing exams. So I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and he only ever used it. Uh, I'm not a, I, I wouldn't say the name. So there's two other honorary doctorates in Ireland. And he would only ever use his doctor title when, he was, when his assistant was ringing them for something. So Dr. Carr on the phone. <laughs> Over the years, as I've traveled around Ireland, I've become enamored by the fact that you can't go into any clubhouse without seeing Joe Carr's name on the walls of past champions. He's everywhere, which is ultimately what inspired this podcast. I've always wanted to know more. So in addition to Jack Nicholas, I interviewed Roddy, John, and Marty separately, asking them all the same set of questions. Here's Roddy, John, and then Marty on when they realized their father was great at golf. He was the man, he was bigger than all the pros. So he was in the final of the British Amateur in 1960. And like at that moment, you realize that he won the British Amateur in Port Rush, you know, in front of his home crowd and demolished this guy over 36 holes and then the drive back. So 
driving back with you all, man, you kind of, that was the first real, you know, realization that my father, you know, was the champion that he was. And then the reception that he got back and in Sutton, they had a big dinner and then the people waiting and he was parading around in an open Rolls Royce down the streets of Sutton. So, you know, he was a superstar in those days before media kind of kicked in. So that was really the first memory. More perspective from John Carr. He was just my dad growing up. He wasn't he wasn't a famous golfer. I, I didn't really appreciate it until much later in life. Uh, when uh, he was my Irish captain when I played for Ireland or and we went to Portugal after I left school to, to play golf with Henry Cotton. Uh, but again, it was it was just it was just growing up with that. It wasn't really, you know, spectacularly special as far as our appreciation of him as a golfer. More from Marty. I think for me it was when when I was at Sports Day when I was in in, in, in Lower High School, uh, and when my dad arrived, the whole of Sports Day would stop, and and the the sports teacher, the headmaster would go over and then have a big conversation with them when everybody's waiting around for it. So then I kind of knew that he was he was kind of a, a larger than life character. What's the swing tip? that you always think about or are quick to pass on to others? Is there something as it relates to the game of golf that in your mind, when you tee up a ball or when you're over a wedge or when you're over a putt, was there, is there something that has always stuck with you? We had John Jacobs as our teacher, who's actually the fundamental teacher of Michael Bannon, of Butch Harmon. I mean, Butch came over to his funeral. He lived in our house. He had size 11 shoes and there'd be six kids jumping on his bed in the morning and stuff. So. He would be the foundation of all the great teachers of today. So, so all of the teachings were based on the simplicity of John Jacobs, which were turn, turn your shoulders like that, club goes up and turn through. So that was it. So every morning we would hit 200 balls to be a snake of balls teed up outside of our, our house on the thing. JB would walk out in his tracksuit and just go turn, hit, turn, hit, turn, hit. So it was always just, you know, and on the inside, turn wide back inside, much like, Jacobs, which is McElroy. So before John died, before Jacobs, we call him, died, I said to him, you know, isn't that McElroy swing looks like the swing that you were trying to get JB to do for years? He said, it's the best I've ever seen. So it was kind of that picture of set up wide turn and then inside and let it rip. And JB ripped it. So that's the simple thoughts that he lived with all, all his life. He was a wonderful bunker player. He kind of, he just got it very early. And he would always say, lift the ball. You don't, you don't splash it out, you lift the ball out. You lift the ball out and have it rolling towards the hole. But obviously I wasn't listening very well, as you can tell, because you played a lot of golf with me. <laughs> so I never really implemented much of it. Lift it out, lift it out of the bunker, rather than trying to hit it out of the bunker. Lift it out. And as a follow-on story for that, uh, in about 1990, uh, he was refereeing a match. I think Roddy was commentating, actually. A, a match between Jack Nicklaus and Christy O'Connor, Dan and Juliet. And um, on the second hole, Jack short-sided himself in, uh, in the bunker right. And he splashed this thing out to about two inches. So after the game, I walked into my dad and I said, Dad, for all of my life, you've been saying, lift the ball out, lift the ball out of the sand. I said, the greatest golfer the world has ever seen has come to Brian Juliet, short-sided himself on two, and splashed the ball out to an inch. And Dad said, Jack is a terrible bunker player. He could never play bunkers. And then I've had this conversation with Jack, and Jack said, well, it wasn't, you know, I, I really just uh, played to play away from bunkers. I didn't, I didn't think I had to be good at getting out of bunkers. So that's just <laughs> the way he saw it. That's the way he saw the world. The life tip that has always uh, meant the most to you beyond the game of golf. Yeah, outworked them. 
That was his motto, like, you know, I worked them. Simple. <laughs> it's like Gary, you know. I mean, JB, you know, you think about it. I mean, he had a nine to five job, six kids. I'm half dead trying to rear two. You know, you're, ha you're, you're only starting. So <laughs> six kids, a nine to five job. You get up in the morning, he'd hit 200 balls, get in his car, drive to work, come home, have tea at six o'clock, go out into the bunker with the lights on it, spend two hours there, and then go and hit another 100 balls in the driving range and come back in and go to bed. And every weekend he'd go and he'd do eight hours a day digging up half the practice ground at Pope Marnock until they banned him because he was like Pac-Man eating the practice ground there with the amount of balls he took, you know, and hit with the driver. So that's all we were ever taught, you know, outwork them. More perspective from John Carr. Very deep for me. I spent a lot of time with my dad, maybe the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years of his life. And the biggest tip, again, which I passed down to my kids and I've lived, it's almost like a life code. It's give expecting nothing in return. So, and, and I, I've lived by that creed and it's, it, it, it's been incredible. It's an incredible gift to be able to give expecting nothing in return. More reflections from Marty Carr. He was an extraordinary man. He, he um, you know, never really heard anybody ever say anything negative about him. Right? He, he was, he was, he was, he was, he treated everybody the same. He used to always say to us, you know, you're better than nobody and nobody's better than you. Remember that. In your mind, what is JB's lasting legacy? Well, I think without a doubt, in, um, for him, it was um, being awarded the Bobby Jones Award, which was for international sportsmanship, being an ambassador, international ambassador of goodwill and for the integrity of the game. I mean, he was invited by Bobby Jones personally to play in 1967 as the amateur in Europe that Bobby Jones wanted to play at the Masters. And they would have afternoon tea, Mary and Bobby and my father and my, my mother, Dor. They would have afternoon tea every, every afternoon because this was amateur to amateur. And in those days, people forget the amateurs were big news. So JB was kind of the counterpart for Jones as an amateur. He can obviously do what Jones did, but... There was a respect between Jones and my father. So he was really, really chuffed to get that Bobby Jones Award, acknowledging his role in promoting in international fellowship, uh, integrity and sportsmanship, which is what that award is all about. And there's not that many names on that that are, that are you know, everybody, everybody who's on that has done their thing and, and deserved it. He went to St. Andrews in 1958 as a pre, or 57 as a preview for the, for the uh, amateur in 58. And uh, he played St. Andrews and he came back and he said to my mother, you know, I just figured it all out. He said, all you have to do in St. Andrews is hit a driver and eight iron and a wedge and you can win. So that winter he hit 50,000 drives, 50,000 eight irons, 50,000 wedges. My mum logged every shot. He wore out the face of a Leonard Topping driver, wore out the grooves of his eight iron and his wedge and he went over and won the tournament the next, uh, the next June. So he had, you know, he, again, he trained with football teams in the 50s. You know, Ronnie, he was, he was, he ran every morning. You know, he used to have a, his caddy would come and tee up a hundred balls outside our, uh, our house on the golf course. When he got up every morning, he'd hit a hundred drives. He'd run down the beach, come back, give me another hundred drives, teed up. He'd hit another hundred drives and he'd get into his car and go into work. And when there was a frost out, the caddy would use a kettle of boiling water to break the ground so he could tee up the hundred balls. So he was just a prodigious worker. He worked so hard on his game. He understood the game really well. And he loved people and he loved competing. You know, that's why 
it was also a very good catalyst for people's personalities. So that's why I think he got on so well with, with Jack Nicklaus. But I think his legacy was he was he was a really, really solid player. Uh, he, was, he was a great friend. He tells a great story about the game of golf and his relationship with the game of golf. He said, you know, he said, we, in those days, we had the troubles in the north. And he said, I, you know, we come from a troubled island, he said, you know, north and south, uh, Protestant, Catholic, you know, all this, all this conflict. And he said, but, you know, the beauty thing about golf is it doesn't matter where in the world you are. You stand on the first tee. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, Catholic or President. You know, nobody cares. All they want to know is what your handicap is. And then when you tell them, they don't believe you. And off you go. You know, and you end up being friends with the golf course. So I suppose it does. It is the ultimate. It is the ultimate. Uh, you know, I think, I think, I think, I think his friendship and his, and his fair, sense of fairness uh, and his sense of equality. He, 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 was, he, was, he was truly a great guy. What would be your favorite story about your dad's greatness? Something that kind of encapsulates how good he was. When Dad was about uh, 80, just around the time when we were um, working on the book, Breaking 80, I managed to find some um, archive footage. Uh, and I got, a, I got a lot of archive footage of, of uh, my dad in the early years. Well, one of the, um, one of the pieces I found was a 1951 Irish amateur final at Port Marnock. Uh, where he was beaten by Cecil Ewing. It was a, a kind of money. He, he was like, they were arch rivals of the day. And uh, he was beaten on the 17th. And he walked off the green and he was smiling and he shook everybody's hand. And I used that as an example to my kids to say, look at this man here walking off the 17th green. Has he won or has he lost? You wouldn't know the difference. And to me, that was the greatness of, of the man, you know. He was a great competitor, but he was a great winner and he was, he was a great loser. So I think that's a great quality. And that's the, you know, as I said, I use that as a, a guide to my kids. He played the World Cup in 69, I played in 71. So we played for Leinster together. We only missed it by one. We were really, I was trying to get him to hang on, but like he was 50 at that stage. So we were really trying to be a father and son job on that. So anyway, uh, about 1969, he'd sent me off to Florida to Pine Tree, where Truman Canal to learn how to play golf. Da, 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 da. So I was there, came back to play in the south of Ireland, and I was a good player then. And I didn't make the cut to get into the match play. And it was confounded him because he knew I was a good player, but like for him. And he kind of came to me and he said, Now you're going to caddy for me. And this was his 39th championship that he, you know, this was before. And he said, I'm going to show you how easy it is to win one of these things. It's ridiculous. He said, you're good enough to win. You can't even qualify. Now, you're going to catch me. I'm going to show you. My favorite story is he's down in Lahinch uh, playing in the, in the south of Ireland. I think it's the semi-final or the final of the south of Ireland back in, in, in the late 50s. And he's playing a match against Noel Fogarty and Roddy's on the bag. I'm sure Roddy might tell this one better. He always had this thing in match play with my mother who would walk every hole with him. When he got to three up, it was always two, you know, two matches morning, afternoon. My mother would go in and make the sandwiches for the car because no man alive could ever get out, could beat, you know, could beat JB if he got three up because nobody can ever win four holes up. And so match over, three up, nod to mother. Mother would head in, make the sandwiches for the afternoon match, wait for him to come in. He'd go to the car, have the sandwiches, come out and dust the next guy six and five, seven and six, whatever it was. This was the scene and we get through and he says to me, um, as we go along, he said, now, he said, I'm, I'm kind of two up on the first tee. And the guy's expecting to be two down after four. 
you know, my job is to make sure he is two down after four. We get to the final, and he's playing against Noel Fogarty, his own bookmaker friend, you know, who only shook hands. He shook a hand with these guys, no contracts, whatever. And Noel was one of his great buddies from early on. And they had seven kids, and we had six kids, and we're playing in the South to see. But Fogarty now was a fearsome friend of his, and he was a good boxer, so he wouldn't have been intimidated like a lot of the other guys that would have fallen by the wayside, just on nerves alone, like. And in those, in those days, it was ruthless uh, hand-to-hand combat, right? 4,000 people. I've come back from America, caddying for Poppy, dusted everybody along the way. Nobody got past the 15th hole. We're three down after five in La Hinch. And I'm like, jiggy, 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 heading for the Dell hole. And I'm looking up at Pop. He was marching along, thousands of people everywhere. I said, Pop, you know the three down rule? This isn't funny. He said, what? I said, you know, you're, you're three down, Pop, because I was translating it the other way, you know. He said, what? He said, what are you talking about? If I don't lose another hole, I'll win by two and one. If I don't lose another hole. It was an incredible strategy. Didn't go chasing. Didn't say I got a win. He hung around. He, he was man to man. Don't go chasing because then you go four down, you go five down. Par, par, your man throws the one back. Par, par, throws another one back. Da, 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 da. Things are going according to plan. No panic. Back to uh, one down with five to go. Perfectly on schedule. No panic whatsoever. So we get, he hits two drivers on to the 13th, I think, and three puts it, you know, which upset him a little bit. We're one down the 16T, part three. And at this stage, like he had trained me with yardages, books, you know, measurements, everything. He didn't do that. Never. <laughs> he just wouldn't, couldn't do it. So I get up to the 17th and I'm throwing the grass up. Not funny. 4,000 people. It says, uh, I said, Pop, it's 175. One club wind, one club elevation. He said, eight iron. I said, what? Eight iron. I said, Pop, did you do eight iron? Because <laughs> that's the shot he saw. A raking hook with a divot two foot long you know, driven into the wind, you know, whatever. Anyway, he hits this thing. It plugs under the face of this uh, seaside bunker. As, and you could barely see like an egg pitching out. Forward gets up with a four iron and hits this kind of a choky hook that scrambles onto the front of the green. Not funny. One down, three to play, you know, plugged in the face of the bunker. A man at the front edge of the green, 40 away. Get down into the bunker. I look at it and as I would always do, thinking, what's the best I could do here? I'm thinking. I, I couldn't see the ball, never mind move it. JB had a club called the Monster, which had a flange on it. It was a big, huge flange of the old days. So he gets into the bunker. He lifted the front of the bunker onto the green. The, whole, the ball then burst out of the debris and then trickled itself out of the debris. Literally half the bunker face ended up on the green. The ball burst for about two feet inside of uh, Fogarty. No, Fogarty was the guy's name. So I'm thinking, geez, how did he, how did he lift that out there? So anyway, just about to, Fogo puts it up to four feet, a little choky, you can feel it, and JB would be, the nose would be, you know, on that stuff. So just, JB is just about to put, the Angelus goes, it's 12 o'clock in the hinge, 12 o'clock, the prayer, the Angelus. Everybody's wearing hats in those days, so everything stops. The crowds in those days were bigger than the crowds at professional tournaments in Europe now, so... It was extraordinary, but 5,000 people around the green. The Angelus bells and the local church ring, everybody gets down on their hands and knees and they say the decade of the rosary, right? So, Hail Mary, full of grace. Caddy puts the pin down, name the Father, Son of the Holy. 
the angel Lord, it's, it's a six minute prayer, you know. <laughs> Pats are on the thing. I'm standing with the bag looking around this scene, knowing I'm supposed to have my head bowed, thinking, you've got to be joking me, you know. This is crazy, man. <laughs> so, so I look over at JB, and JB winks at me. I'm to myself, what has he got to wink at me? A man's up there four feet, he's 35 feet, he's one down with three to play. Not funny. So anyway, Angelus finishes, hats go back on, things settle down again. JP goes up, breaks the back of the hole. Ball goes in, your man who janks it, two feet left, you know, win. He hooks it out of bounds in the next hole, we win the championship. He gives Ronnie a big wink and they move on and he won the tournament. And uh, they're driving back in the car, JP says to Ronnie, that's not how to win a championship. <laughs> Cut. I'm driving home that night, the six of us in this Merc were speeding at 100 miles an hour. I'm looking in the mirror, JB's eyes. I said, how did you know, Pop? How did you know? You know, that you're going to hold it. He said, what? I said, how did you know? You, you winked at me. He said, sure, he left the door open, didn't he? And that's, that's mano de mano. That's when you understood about your own man. Or funny enough, further on down the road, we ended up sliding off the end of the road. We went through the curlews in those days. They were old slides. And then we were driving. The car slid off the side of the road. So Fogo, the guy beating the final, was driving by with the seven kids in the back of the car. He had a station wagon. And he pulls over. He sees JB's car slid down kind of a side of a ditch. Everything's okay. He phones down the window. And he says, Joe, you can't keep it on the fairway and you can't keep it on the road. Good luck. And drove on. <laughs> what would you believe he's most proud of in terms of you and your life? He couldn't ever understand how I failed on the tour because he knew how good a player I was. I could beat Kite and Watman and those guys in the Walker Cup and stuff like that. But I, when I went on the tour, I starved. <laughs> so that would be the probably the area that he could never come to terms with. I think the fact that I ended up going off and then developing another career thanks to Mark McCormick getting my, as I call it, my Harvard education. He kind of liked that and then I ended up kind of with Seve and, and working with Jack and bringing Jack to Ireland to play, you know, play there for the first time. So things like that that he kind of got along the way that he would have the fact that I stayed in golf and was in the top end of the management and promoting tour events, running Ryder Cups, Solheim Cups and stuff like that, that all gave him a bit of a buzz. He was happy for me to, to get memberships of some nice golf clubs. He liked that. Um, but just generally, I think he was very proud of all of us in his own way. Probably the ones of us who played golf at a higher level had a slightly uh, better peek behind the curtain than some of the others, you know? Uh, we got to know him a little bit better. Because he was always, even, I remember the last day myself and Roddy played golf with my dad, you know, Roddy hit this beautiful feathered seven iron on the eighth of Port Marna. It was just a magnificent shot. And like that made my dad totally happy. The fact that Roddy could execute that shot and he knew exactly the talent it took to feel it. You know, the talent it took to move the ball left to right, the talent it took to stop it. So I think he was proud of every good golf shot we ever hit. I think he was very proud of our, of our kids, uh, those that were, that were born. Uh, when he was alive. And I think, you know, he, he's just very proud of all of us.
I didn't really get to know him very well until I came back from the States in 1990, right? I was always the kind of the, the rebel son who was often American. And it was, there wasn't a huge amount of good news coming from America. It was usually, it was usually, it was usually a cash call or, or something. So, so I would say I got to know him when I came back uh, uh, in, in, in 1990. Uh, and um, when I set up Car Golf, uh, he, he, I, he really, he, he kind of retired at that stage. So it was a really something that, you know, I ended up generating a very uh, close relationship with the man. And uh, he was very old school, but certainly as the father and son developed and, and, and he came out and, and kind of met you know, groups of people or met them in Port Marnock or Sutton Golf Club. He I think he got a really, really good sense of pride. It gave him it gave him a kind of a, a second a second run at it. Um I think that's that's probably what he's most proud of in terms of, of me and our relationship in later life. Like he was a very competitive man. Uh, and uh, you know he didn't really mind what you were doing as long as you were successful at it. How about your mom? Where does she fit in all this? She was incredible. She managed him. In those days, there was no management of amateurs or anything, but she managed his brand. So she would write 400 postcards every Christmas, handwritten with a photograph of the family and send them to everybody he'd met. She had the most beautiful handwriting. She wrote to everybody that he ever met or stayed with. So she was the actual, and this was just good manners in those days, but that actually established Joe Carr as the famous individual that he was. She was uh, like Superwoman, you know. She basically, she had six kids. She hit the ball about 100 yards off the tee. She got down to 12 handicap. They won like seven All-Ireland mixed foursomes together. She hit him 100 yards down the fairway. He was like 250 yards on the green. She was the best putter in the family, a little blade putter. Used to cut the ball, always kept her head steady. So, so they, she basically was an amazing golfer for, for, the, for the distance she hit the ball. She ran his whole life. Uh, she ran our house with six kids. Uh, she was an amazing, an amazing woman. Unfortunately, left us in 1976, uh, too early. But, uh, but she was the power behind the throne, definitely. He was driven, he was definitely driven. He was adopted, he came from absolutely nothing. He worked, he left school at 15 and, and cared for his mother. He, you know, he, he went out selling dresses. He practiced hard. He, Literally, literally, just you know, beat his way out of Inchy Core, which is not well, it's probably one of the least affluent places in Ireland, you know. So he he did it all himself, um, and he married well. He, he he married he married my mother, who was who was a saint. This podcast is called the Fire Pit uh, because it's the kind of stories you'd want to be you know hear or tell around a fire pit. Do you have a favorite fire pit and why? Waterville are building it at the moment, Maddie. <laughs> I actually have an American friend, Andy Pierce, and we get together every year. He, used to, he worked with me at IMG, and his, he had a group of, you call it the Queechy Group, and they're a bunch of uh, kind of uh, main fellas who went to college in Bowdoin. I have my four retrobate friends who are the shoe man, the music man, the stock man, and myself, who are from all walks of life. We've kind of joined together and we get together every year and we have, he's into pits. So I really, everywhere we go, we build this pit fire and we sit around drinking and telling stories. So when you, when I saw the name, the fire pit, I wouldn't have known that as Ireland. In Ireland, as you know, it's the pub. The pub is the fire pit. 
you know, it's like Butler Arms is the fire pit in Waterville, <laughs> right? And there's a little small fire in the corner, which kind of does its job, but I think, you know, it's the pub in Ireland and then, yeah, but the fire pit for me is the one in America, which I love. I have a fire outside my back door. It's a fireplace. And during the lockdown, we've had lots of sing songs and drinks and loud music and, you know, annoying the neighbors and stuff happening at our fire pit. Yeah, no, we have. We, we light it quite a lot. In fact, it's ready to be lit tonight. Put another log on the fire. But here is getting tired. Are you looking for good value on great golf apparel? As a listener to this podcast, my friends John Ashworth and Jeff Cunningham at Link Soul in Oceanside, California, are offering you a 25% discount on all future orders of what I wear all day, every day, on and off the course. Whenever you go to linksoul.com, just use promo code MattyG25. M-A-T-T-Y-G-25. Thank you for listening to The Fire Pit. It's produced by Alex Upegi. It's edited by Rex Lint. The theme song is by Joe Horowitz. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and we might track you down and send you one of our new Imperial Rope Hats. Got a question, comment, or a story for us to track down? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Janella or on Instagram at Matt underscore Janella. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Fire Pit on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to a story like this one. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is where we post portions of our podcast and add some visual surprises.